And the theme of this lesson, if you like, although perhaps the question I would say we're trying to answer is why would God, why would God curse himself? And you may say, that's a rather strange question. And where do we see that? Well, as we look through this passage, I hope that we'll understand what's going on here, what God is doing, and answer that question and see what that means for you and I today. Now, in this chapter, although in many of the account, many of the other chapters in the narrative about Abraham, Abraham is very much the focus. I would say that Abraham's very significant here, but perhaps God is the key player here. He's the key focus. When this was written, I suspect we're meant to learn much about Abraham, but also meant to see things about the character and the nature of God that maybe aren't quite so clearly revealed in other parts of Scripture. So as we go through this, I'd like to ask us to be thinking about the two questions we're going to be discussing later in breakout rooms, which is what are we learning about God, his heart, his nature, his character, the way that he interacts with humankind, the way he wants to interact with us, with you and me today. What are we learning about him? And then secondly, what are we learning about Abraham, about his heart, his spirituality, his character, his way of viewing God, his way of interacting with God, and what might that mean for the way that we think about the way that we interact with God today? So Abraham and God, what do we learn about both of them? That's what we're talking about today we see that the Lord comes to Abraham in a vision. So this is a vision. This is something very significant. It doesn't happen often in scripture. Do not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your reward. So what's going on here? What's going on here is I think Abraham is being reassured by God. You're doing the right thing. You're going the right way. The way you, you allowed Lot to have choice, you were generous. And the way that you went to rescue him with taking your courage in your hands and the way that you stood up to the king of Sodom and had integrity and also the way I think that he interacted with Melchizedek, uh, uh, receiving the blessing and giving him a tithe, as it says in chapter 14. That's the right way to go. And here's the thing, Abraham, I think God is saying, you are a warrior. And Abraham was a strong man. He was a warrior. He was a, a, a man willing to go into battle. So Abraham is a warrior for Lot. I think God is saying, I am the warrior for you. I fight for you. In other words, you don't have to fight for yourself. I am your shield and I am your reward. Because Abraham, as we know already, has, has accumulated a large amount of possessions and a, a large um, uh, household, an extended household. He's got a lot of people around him. He's got at least a thousand people in his household if he's got 318 fighting men. So he's accumulating a lot of wealth. Maybe he's not quite at the level of Elon Musk, but he's um, he's going up there and he's doing well. Um, but I think what God is saying is, here is your reward isn't these things. Your reward is me. Because the translation says, I am your shield, your very great reward. But it can be translated as I am your shield. I am your very great reward. So God is reminding Abraham that so you may be successful in business, you may be successful in war, but the key thing is to be successful with me and have a relationship with me that is meaningful. And in verses two and three, Abraham then brings up a reasonable uh, issue. What can you give me since I remain childless? The one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer. You've given me no children, he says in verse three. A servant will be my heir. And of course, in that context, that's what would normally happen. If uh, if if a family was childless, then 
and there was no direct heir, then you might select someone like an Eliezer who was a not just a servant, but he would have been the one probably in charge of the whole household, um, someone that he had to work closely with and would get to know very well. But that's all I've got. And I wonder whether God received Abraham's question as accusatory or not, because he says, you have given me no children. Is that an accusation or is that maybe an expression of, but this is the situation, God, I'm in. I, you've given me no kids. So this servant is going to get everything. It could be accusatory or it could be expectant because sometimes, and this happens a lot with kids, I think, with those of us who are parents, where a child will come and want something. But when they say they want it, they're saying they want it or need it to us because they believe that we are the ones who can provide the solution. I prefer to think the second way with, with Abraham and God here, because, because in verse four and following, God does not rebuke Abraham for his question. He doesn't say, oh, how dare you doubt me? Indeed, instead, he gives him an answer. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Go outside, look at the stars, see if you can count them. That's how your offspring are going to be. And then Abraham, of course, believes the Lord. It's as if God is agreeing with Abraham to partner with him, to sort out the problem. Something about God, something about God, he delights to partner with his creation, with you and I. It's not just he does things and we don't do anything. He partners with us. I think that's what's going on here. Um, will not, this man, this man will not be your heir, but a son. I mean, it's very definite in the, again, in the Hebrew, it's, it's very almost commanding. No, it won't be like this. It'll be like this. I have decided it. That's the end of the matter. And this child will come from your own body. The stars, they're un uncountable. They're majestic. They're beautiful. This is what your family is going to be like going forward. And then it says Abraham believed him. And of course, the term believed is a bit more than just an intellectual belief. Uh, this is a trust. He believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And this is a key phrase in scripture. I mean, it comes very early on in Genesis, but it's a key concept and idea all the way through scripture, all the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Indeed, the Apostle Paul picks up on this idea in, and I'll read this from Galatians 3, 6 to 9. It says, even so, Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So Paul is emphasizing that faith is more significant than anything. And we see this here. There's no, uh, there's no Mount Sinai yet. There's no giving of the law. That's come later with Moses. There's no moral law uh, expressed yet or, or uh, um, laid out. There's just relationship, just rela a trusting relationship. And so what he's talking about here when he says that um, Abraham believed the Lord, it's saying he was faithful to the relationship. It wasn't about keeping a certain set of moral standards. Certainly God has those, but that wasn't the essence of their relationship. The essence of their relationship, and this must be surely the same for you and I today. The essence of a relationship, a true relationship with God, is not that we behave right in every circumstance, 
but that we have an abiding faithfulness to the relationship we have with God. Now, that changes the way we live and the standards we hold to, but it's about the, the love, the love, relationship, trust, faithfulness, not about anything else. Uh, I, when Paul is writing, of course, in Galatians, he's saying to the to saying to Jewish Christians, don't rely on your ancestry that you are Jewish to say we are right with God. Don't rely on your circumcision. We might need to think about the fact that our rightness with God doesn't depend on our church membership. It doesn't depend on turning up. It doesn't even depend on our baptism into Christ, highly significant as that is. It doesn't depend on that. In other words, we can't stand before God one day and say, yeah, I didn't really know you and I wasn't really that interested in knowing you and I wasn't really that interested in being faithful, but I did get baptized. That's not the, the baptism isn't the point. In fact, the baptism itself is only meaningful in that it, in that it is an expression of faith. It's about trust in God. So what we're seeing here is that we're being reminded that the fundamental way that God relates to humankind and wants to relate to humankind is to have a, a mutually trusting relationship. God is personal in that way. Both parties committed to the relationship. God committed, us committed to the relationship. We do what we can. God does what only he can. And we're going to come on to talk about that in a moment here. So let's press on. Verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. So there's an extension here or a further revealing of the promise here where he says it's this land, where you are now. It's not just the land or a land I'll show you. This is your land, he says. Here it is. You're going to take possession of it. And he uses the phrase in the Hebrew, Yahweh. When it says Lord there in capitals in most Bibles, I am the Lord. He's saying, I am Yahweh. Now, only four times in Scripture does God use the word, the, the name Yahweh of himself. It's used by other people, but only four times. And this is the first time in Scripture. It's really interesting because you'll know probably later when God reveals himself to Moses, what does he tell him when Moses says, who are you? He says, I am who I am, which is Yahweh. He's revealing himself, and more than his name as a, uh, just a name like Malcolm, it denotes who he is. It's his very nature. And so we see that Abraham and God, uh, uh, God is revealing to Abraham his very nature. He's using, in a sense, a very intimate term of, his, of who he is with Abraham here. It's a beautiful thing, this connection they have and that God wants them to have. And in verse 8, Abraham has another question. Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? How? It's not will it happen now, it's how's that going to work out? And again, I think it's really interesting and I really like it that, again, God does not rebuke Abraham for saying, look, I've got it all figured out. Why are you asking? I'm, don't you believe me? You said you believed in me, right? Verse 6, you could quote the verse to him. <laughs> That's what you said, Abraham. But God doesn't do that. He accommodates the question. Now, he accommodates the question in a very interesting way, because as you read the next few verses about the sacrifices and the smoking pot and all that, it doesn't look to me as if God is very directly answering the question. <laughs> so Abraham says how, and God doesn't give him a three-point plan. He doesn't give him a formula. He says, right, okay, I'll tell you what, just to convince you, go and get some animals. Get a heifer, a goat, a ram three years old, and a dove and a young pigeon, and bring them to me. And although it doesn't say it in the passage, presumably uh, God 
told Abraham to uh, cut them in two and arrange them like that because that's what he does. So what's going on here with the heifer, the goat and the ram? Well, it looks like a prefiguring of the sacrifices that God would later bring in for the Israelites. We see that in Leviticus chapter 9 verses 2 and 3 when God tells Aaron to take a calf, a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering and, uh, and a calf and a lamb without defect. So it seems to be a prefiguring of the sacrificial rites that will take place later in Israel's history. And it says that they're to be three years old. And the most likely explanation I've heard so far for the reason why they're three years old is to represent the three generations that will be in Egypt under oppression, which God talks about just after this. He talks about they'll be there for 400 years. Well, that's 300 years plus the generate 300 years of oppression, then the generation that will experience release. Uh, which is coming up. So that may be what's going on there. And why the birds? Why the birds? And why the birds coming down on the uh, on the sacrifice? Because it says the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. So the birds coming down, often in scripture, they, they denote the enemies of Israel. They are the Gentiles. A reference I'll put in some notes afterwards and send to you is Ezekiel 17 verse 23. Ezekiel 17, 23. And in that context, in Ezekiel, the birds that are coming are the Gentiles coming to take away God's people to cause them problems. And we, it's a, there's a reference in Matthew to that as well, that idea. And so we see that it looks like what's going on here with the birds of prey coming down is that they're trying to interfere with the relationship that Abraham has with God. And Abraham, I think what's going on here, as he is driving them off, I think he's protecting the honor of God. He's protecting his relationship with God. He's saying, you have nothing to do with this. You need to get out of here. And the birds come down. I looked up these kinds of birds that might have been around in the, uh, what, 4,000 years ago in that part of the world. I looked on the uh, Israeli uh, website about the birds in the area. And there are four main birds, just so you know, because these are not small birds. In fact, I have something to show you. If I... Penny's mum. That's Penny's mum with a vulture on her arm. Oh, you wow. see the size of that thing. Of course. See the size of it. Imagine driving lots of those off these sacrifices. It's <laughs> it's dark. You've got all these birds flying around, these vultures, probably vultures, maybe some eagles. Mm. The lappet-faced vulture, the largest bird of prey to be found in Israel, has a wingspan of three meters. That's why, you know, another third again on what I have. That's a big wingspan. Um, their nests are three meters in size. In fact, the word for bird of prey in the Hebrew means scream. These are birds who scream. That's what they are. Uh, we've also got Bonelli's eagle, which can fly as fast as 125 miles an hour. 125 miles an hour. You've got the sooty falcon and you've got the griffin vulture as well in that area. Again, a wing, very large wingspan. And uh, it can live to over 50 years old. Big old chunky birds, these. And this is what Abraham is doing right here. Let me, okay. This is what's going on. He's, he's protecting what, uh, what God has provided to make sure that he and Abraham stay connected. That's what I think is going on. And then... The sun sets, Abraham falls into a deep sleep. That's reminiscent of the last person to fall into a deep sleep was Adam in Genesis 2.21 when he falls into a deep sleep and then God brings Eve out of him. So we've got this kind of special thing going on here. 
Uh, we've got the darkness in um, a dreadful darkness, which is reminiscent of Sinai, Deuteronomy chapter 4, when the, the presence of God comes down on the mountain at the giving of the law. That's a terrible kind of fear and darkness. I think the deep sleep that he goes into is protective of Abraham, because I think this whole theophany, as it's called, when God appears, it's called a theophany, this whole theophany is terrifying. I mean, you remember that uh, when uh, Elijah was shown God, he, uh, he had to hide and God only showed his back. I mean, it's all figurative. But nonetheless, to have this intimacy with God is so terrifying that God has to put him into some kind of deep sleep to experience it. And then there's a covenant made. He gives, he gives the prophecy about what will happen. And he's making, it says, a covenant. Covenants, of course, are very significant. And we haven't got time to talk about all of that today. But when you made a covenant, just a bit of, um, a bit of uh, a background, if you like, uh, when you make a covenant, it's called cutting a covenant. That's what you did in that culture. You cut a covenant. You would uh, cut animals. And then you would often, you would, what you make, when you made the promise with the person you were making the covenant with, usually a more powerful king with a less powerful king. And you'd make a covenant and you'd say, I'll protect you. I'm the, I'm the big king. I'll protect you as long as you're loyal to me, pay your taxes and provide me with fighting men. As long as you do that, we'll be okay. And then the other person, you'd make a, that your side of the covenant and the lesser king would make their side of the covenant. But what you were saying is you cut the animals and often, as you said it, you'd hold a knife to your throat. So um, I've got a knife handy, but I do have a I do have a letter opener. OK, that'll have to do. Right. So you'd hold this thing to your throat and you'd make your pro promise. You'd make your covenant, because what you're saying is like these animals have been cut in half. And as I'm holding this knife to my throat, if I break this covenant, you have the right to slit my throat. That's the seriousness of that kind of covenant. Let me give you a little bit of a flavor by, again, going back to screen sharing and showing you a more or less contemporary covenant that was, that's been discovered. This is an Akkadian covenant. Aban, who is the king, swore to Yarim Lim, who's the lesser king, the vassal, the oath of the gods and cut the neck of a lamb. So they've cut the neck of a lamb. May I be cursed if I take back what I gave you. If ever in the future Yarim Lim sins against Aban, if he lets go of the hem of Aban's garment and takes hold of the hem of another king's garment, in other words, is disloyal, he shall forfeit his cities and territories. And archaeologists have discovered more and more of these as the years have gone by. So we see that uh, God is enacting a covenant here, uh, which would have been a, a, a common uh, concept of the time. But there's a big difference. There's a really big difference here in these covenants because Normally, you make this agreement between a uh, two parties and they're both held to account. But in this situation, it's really only God calling himself to account. In a, in a, a terrifying experience, the sun has set, darkness has fallen, smoking fire pot, a blazing torch appears. What are those? I think that's the theophany. I think that's God appearing in the form, at least, of a smoking pot of a blazing torch. You may remember, of course, the pillar of fire that, that went with the Israelites in Exodus 14 and guided them and protected them, kept uh, Pharaoh's uh, armies away, protected them, and then led them through the, the, the desert. Or you've got the situation on Sinai, again, when the law was given, and there's fire on the mountain, and the people are told, do not approach the mountain, don't go near it. And they say, yeah, no, fine, we won't go anywhere near it, because it's like a volcano. That's where Moses goes up. This is what's going on. It's where God is most present and most personal in the old covenant. So this, co this co covenant is being cut, usually from the stronger to the weaker. But here, 
here it's God placing himself under a curse, in a sense, saying, this is what I am promising to do. And he is the one going between these, um, uh, these animals that have been cut into two, passing through them and making that covenant, verse 18, to your descendants, I give this land. He's saying, this is my promise to you. I mean, all Abraham's got to do is be faithful. That's all that's in mind here. There's nothing else. I will give you this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, and all the other places that Penny read earlier. This is extraordinary. There is, archaeology has discovered many covenants of many types. Not one covenant from this period has been found where the greater party, the more powerful one, is taking on the role of the lesser, saying, I'm holding myself accountable to you to give you all this, to make sure you get it. Never been seen before. It's so different from what we see in the rest of that culture in that time. So I think that's what's going on. <laughs> There's a lot more we could talk about, but I'm going to stop there. So we've got enough time for discussion. And I hope the explanation is enough for us to get some idea of what's going on in Abraham's mind and his heart, in his spirit, you could say, and what's going on in the heart and mind of God. Who, who are we learning God to be? What are we learning about him, who he is, how he relates to humankind? And what are we learning about Abraham and his faith? What are we learning here about his faith that's going to help us to learn how to be faithful to God in the same way Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness? What are we learning? So I'm going to pop us into some breakout um, rooms. I see, Malcolm, that God had the preferred way of motivating Abraham. Um, obviously, Abraham's despondence in not having any offspring, God choose to motivate him by taking him outside, showing him the stars, and instilling a, a, a vision, a dream, uh, aspirations of what the future is likely to be. So he knew Abraham's state, he knows our state and where we're at, and he chose a preferred way to motivate him by giving him a, a, a big dream, an impossible dream in Abraham's eyes. And so I see God in making the covenant with Abraham, pursuing uh, the relationship by initiating these points to encourage Abraham all the more. Mm. That's thank you. Yeah, it's an in, it's it's a motivation by inspiration. Fantastic. I I think what do I think. I just think God's tremendously faithful to the relationship with Abraham. Obviously, me and Penn was saying, you only get snippets of, of, of the snapshots in time of, of the relationship you have with God. And obviously, there's him and other people calling on the name of God. His father um, probably has his plan to go to Canaan. Abraham's discouraged because his wife can't have children. Is then father dies and end up in Haran, and he's probably feeling despondent, like Silbert says, maybe what doesn't want to continue the rest of the journey to Canaan. Um, he doesn't see the point, maybe father's died, discouraged, wife can't have children. There's, there's a lack of future there for him, maybe. I don't know. But God uses this situation to say, okay, look, I'm going to show you how powerful and faithful I am. I'm going to take you to Canaan. 
but not only that, I'm going to make you to a great nation. Um, there's more to this than meets the eye. This journey is a special journey, more than you realise. And it's about the future of my name for everyone. That's kind of what I get from the story. And obviously then this part we've read about today is affirming that covenant with him in a bizarre way, as we say, but in a in a way bizarre to us, <laughs> but in a way for Abraham must be very special to see something tangible in the smoking pot. Um, effectively reenact the sacrifice, the, um, the, the covenant, uh, that makes sense. So it must have been, see a re visual representation, must have been amazing, just like it would have been for the Egyptians to see the smoking fire and various things. And the only other thing I said was that the, we, we actually see quite a few times in the Bible where God becomes a curse. And actually, fundamentally, Jesus dying on the cross is God cursing himself for us as well. Um, so you see you see things echoed in the Bible, which is quite interesting. <clears throat> yeah, so early on. That's right. Yeah. So it, yes. even even from the very beginning to the cross, there's a connection there. Yes. That's <clears throat> right. Right right near the beginning, we're seeing God being willing to be sacrificial to help us out. God had, prom God had promised to Abraham that he would inherit the land, um, uh, and there's a there's, there's a promise. It's only part of the only part of the chapter. Other places as well, and then God, um, in this deep sleep, says to Abraham, that he won't, he won't inherit the land because he's going to die. Right. Yes. Um, and so, so you know, this this is how you know the writers of the hebrews can say that he was somebody who 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 died in faith not having inherited the promises so abraham was looking forward to something beyond his own death um abraham didn't believe in god he believed god and i think there's a big difference there because we we can believe in god but we can have lack of belief of god we could sometimes we can not believe god he, he totally believed God, and it was in that belief he was able to ask him for clarifications on things and to bring up questions he had on, well, how's this going to work? How's this going to work? Because he believed what God was saying, and therefore he was looking at, yeah, but I can't understand how that will work. Um, and I think that that's something I got out of that passage. It's a total belief in God, but believing what God says, believing what yeah. God does. To be to be true and to be coming true. Uh, just to add to what Barry said and what um, I think John said as well is um, this: the way that Abraham took what God said to him. Because if I imagine myself in that situation of being promised all these amazing things, which obviously I, I yet cannot see, and then on the back of that, almost sort of a, a doomed doom prophecy of this yeah. is going to happen i don't know but i think i'm my thoughts will be focused on that 400 years why and why is i and i don't know but he just didn't question that in the way that i think maybe i would have and i think that shows an incredible amount of faith and trust that god knows exactly what he's doing and everything's going to be fine and i think that is such a 
hard thing to do. Yeah. Uh, it certainly is. Yeah, yeah. Just, just to echo that as well, just the thought that it's a promise that you, you're not going to enjoy. So for me, I'm just trying to think of the type of place Abraham would have been at to for that to be seen as a reward for him because, okay, you have all these descendants. They will take over the, the country, will, a nation will be built from you, but you're not going to see any of it. So for me, it's basically having a vision that extends beyond just being here. Yeah. Basically having a vision of eternity. That's the only way something like that would be useful to to him and to me, because there's a time I used to think, okay, if I'm not here, if I died and I don't, I it, and don't I don't know what's happening, then what's the point of whatever I do now? Because when I'm gone, it's it's all doesn't matter. But I think this just gives that idea of eternity and the fact that with a relation in a relationship with God, it goes beyond what we see now. Yeah, that, that's a really important point. And it speaks to the idea that God isn't only interested in this generation, like ours. He's interested in the next generation and the one after that and the one after that. And sometimes when we don't see all that we'd like to see done in this world or in our church or whatever, it may be that God's saying, I know, but I'm, I'm preparing through you the blessings for the next generation. So, good. Any other thoughts? I was Kate? just going to say, um, well, there's two things. One, I don't know, maybe I'm being a bit dense, but what is the heart application? That's, so that's a question back. How does this apply to our lives today? So I always like to think about that. And secondly, uh, for me, it shows that God is very protective, that he, yeah. um, he didn't, frighten Abraham by showing his whole being like he put him into a sleep and he protected him so there's a nurturing protective part of God uh, when we're in relationship to him it, it showed also Abraham's total faith and trust in God and in God's promises because it, it reminds me later on in the story where Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son and then thinking of the question, well, the promise was that my descendant would be from this seed. How is that going to be possible? But yet still, even in that situation, Abraham didn't hesitate. He just obeyed and went believing in God's promise. I mean, um we were discussing this um, chapter in, in our breakout and, and what just comes to mind from this chapter 15 is it's, to, I mean, to any normal human being like me, which I believe I represent like 99% of most humans on earth, I would like to think, it absolutely does not make any sense whatsoever because when I'm in, I'm in a situation where I'm there, you know, with, with, you know, with God and he's demonstrating all this power, all this glory, telling me what's going to happen a thousand years from now, you know, putting me to sleep, you know, you know, 
you know, doing all this what you can almost call sorcery, magic, and, you know, things that you can only imagine. And yet, you know, what is really important to me, which is I need a son. You're not ready to give me that. And at the same time, I still need to believe in you. I just think what God is asking for is almost, it's not, this is it's not about a reward but for Abraham. What God is asking him for is blind obedience and loyalty, pretty much giving him his entire heart. Yeah? And like Barry was saying, you know, believe God. That's beyond any, what any normal human being will be willing to give. And from the, from the story, it seems like, you know, Abraham is more than capable of doing that. How God knew that, I don't know. But, but I think in a way, it's just that blind loyalty, you know, leave yourself behind, leave everything you think, everything you know, you know, suspend your imagination and just act as I said, you know. And, and I think that's what God is asking of Abraham and potentially that's what we could try and live up to, which is almost like panning for gold yeah, in, age, in the middle of an ocean. You're just swimming against the tide. So, but, but, but Abraham demonstrated it, you know, superbly well. And maybe that's what made him, you know, the father of faith. And while we are talking about him today, you know, five and many thousand years ago. So, so that's what I find remarkable about, about his story, and especially about this particular chapter that we looked at, yeah. It's, you know, God's, God's really put himself on the line here, you know, um, I, I, I feel. And, um, you know, he's, he's, he's made this promise, which is um, um, an incredible act of, um, I don't know if the word chivalry or, or you know, um, he says it's definitely going to happen. He's put it in concrete, you know, and, um, you know, um, as I said, he's put, he's put his neck on the line, you know, which is uh, amazing for God to do that. But, um, yeah, it's going to, you know, it's the same with um, what Jesus did for us, you know, on, on the cross, you know, and, uh, and the promises is something for us doubters, you know, um, you know, need to, you know, put our faith in really. And uh, that's what he was doing with Abraham. He was just making sure that uh, everything's in the, you know, set in concrete, you know, um, uh, with faith, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, um, I think that's the general gist. I can't think of it. Not very eloquent at the moment. <laughs> but um, thank you anyway, Mark, and that was excellent. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. Thank you, everybody. Uh, we could clearly talk about this for quite a lot longer and get a lot of other insights. Uh, I think we're going to have to wrap up though. And thanks Leon and Sarah for putting that in. It's a two part conversation. Yeah. The first is reassuring and then the, then the vision that's more concrete. And I think part for me, part of what comes out of this is that God wants to connect with us on our level. He wants to connect with us and communicate with us in a way that's meaningful to us. This covenant experience, so strange to you and I, would have been something Abraham was familiar with as a concept. Well, not more than a concept, as, a, as an experience. He would have seen 
covenants like this, similar to this, carried out, or he'd have certainly known about them with other um, tribal leaders or leaders of clans, as well as kings and vassals. So God uses a medium, a method which he would connect with. And seeing God do this in a way, or experiencing God place himself in a sense under a curse, in a way that was unprecedented for that stronger party, I think would have been deeply moving to Abraham. Uh, moved him in a way that was really fundamental to his whole being in that sense. And of course, we see that later with Jesus on the cross, but we'll come back to that. So I think that's the first thing I see is the way that God wants to reassure us, as somebody's mentioned, to reassure us, to accommodate us and our weaknesses and our questions. That I think it means, at least in part, that we can confidently take our questions to God. It does not mean that he will directly answer them. And it does not mean that always the answers are palatable to us. As somebody mentioned, the vision that's given is an awesome vision, but it's also a rather a disappointing or discouraging one to know that your descendants will be enslaved for 400 years. That's not the kind of vision I want God to give me about my descendants, about Fred and Lydia and their children and their children's children. Oh yeah, it's going to be great. You can have lots of kids and they're all going to be enslaved for hundreds of years. Thanks, God. I mean, there is, it's, it's got its uh, downside, you could say. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. Afterwards, they come out with great possessions. And without dwelling too much on the material side of that, I think what that's saying to me is, God has always got a good purpose to bring something good out of even the evil. And God has only our best interests at heart and interest of all humankind's at heart. Something good will come out of the evil. In other words, God will ultimately enact justice. Whatever injustice you and I experience, whatever injustice we're deeply concerned about, and we should be active about, fine, on this earth, it's right to be concerned and active, but ultimately, no injustice will triumph eternally. God will enact, enact justice ultimately. That's part of what's going on here. With Abraham, um, I love, as so many of you said, I just love the way that he trusts God. And it, it ends up being obedient. You're right, I think it was Danny who said that, or maybe Simon as well. It is expressed in obedience, but the obedience is a, it's a manifestation of the trust that he has in God. And it seems to me with Abraham, and we'll talk more about this in later chapters, but his trust level in God, I think, goes up as life goes on. He starts by leaving his household. He ends up by being willing to sacrifice his own son. And part of the way that we know we're staying faithful to God, and it's not like there's a formula for this, but part of the way we know we're staying faithful to God is that we are habitually faithful. It's not that we don't fail. We go up and down. But it's more about the trajectory of the whole life, lifetime and, and prayerfully that our trust in God and our faith in him grows over time. And it may not be a straight line, it may be a bit wiggly um, and there will be low points. But ultimately, the sort of faith I had at the beginning of my Christian life and the faith I have at the end, I would hope and pray, would be, it would be stronger and higher at the end because I know God better. And God's taken me through so many difficult things. You and I. We've all been through some difficult stuff in life. Maybe you're going through a really tough time right now, but you'll find as well as we all do that if we hold on to God through those, we end up with a stronger faith, a deeper trust afterwards 
than before. And it's not just that God has helped us. It's also that we've come to know him better. I think that's part of what's going on here. Hold on to God. You will get to know him better. And and sometimes the way that God works is mysterious. That's part of what's going on here too. It is pretty mysterious. It's pretty it's pretty strange, but it's wonderful. And sometimes the way that God deals with us is a bit strange, but ultimately it is wonderful. God has a bigger vision than you and I can possibly conceive of. And it's all connected with his desire for us to know him, to enjoy him, be healed and to live in his love. We have our doubts, we have our questions, we have our confusions. Some God will answer now, some he acts on now, some he asks us to trust him for. And God accepts our habitual trust as an invitation to welcome him, us into his love. And he, his perspective or his response is to pay any price he needs to pay to bring about our healing even to the extent, I would say here, in calling down a curse upon himself if he were to fail. Uh, Danny mentioned it earlier, Jesus did this for us. And this is what we're going to reflect on before we take bread and wine. Let me read for us from Galatians chapter 3. It says this, Be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons and daughters of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law, before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them, Christ. And then he gets to this point about Jesus. <clears throat> Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's you and me, by the way. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Since we have faith in God, we're grateful for what Jesus has done. We are counted as righteous before God by our faith and by the cross. So let's pray before we take bread and wine. Father, we want to 